Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome back to those of you joining us on our live stream. We're going to dive into the meaning of the word hevel, hevel, and all that good stuff. So thank you so much for being with us. All right. So I feel a little awkward with this, with this discussion. So I always, if I teach Hebrew, I've been teaching Hebrew for several years now. And um, I tell my students, like in Hebrew, like if I, if, I, if I ever come to your church and I hear you say something like, in the original Hebrew, this means blah, 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 then I will, like, stand up and throw my Bible at you, okay? Because people who translate the Bible are, like, Hebrew genius nerds, right? And Greek genius nerds, like, they know the language. And what we have in the Bible is what the Bible says. Like, we we have a very, very, very good English translations. Um, And so... It's funny that like that is like a core value of mine. I feel that in my heart. I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about saying, look, people, we can trust the Bible. Like it is, it is scripture, one, and it is scripture, like it is, it is what was written in the original language. It's good translations, like, you know, and, and especially in the English language, we have these phenomenal translations. Okay. So the ironic part is I spent my, you know, two years of, of um, school, three years of school, I don't know, a lot of years of school, writing on this term hevel and, and, and arguing that it's not, it doesn't mean what English translations say it means. And this is, I think, the key to understanding Ecclesiastes, okay? So this word, hevel, and, it, and it's related to, so we wanted to do I wanted to do the Genesis shape of Ecclesiastes first to point out those five or four or five areas where you see Ecclesiastes pointing back to Genesis one through four, one through three especially. Now, Hevel is another place where Ecclesiastes points back to the book of Genesis. And I think taken alone by itself, I don't think we could make much of this. It's just one word. It appears just a few times in Genesis 4, uh, and it appears like 37, 38 times, around 38 times in Ecclesiastes. And now it wouldn't be that big of a deal, except that we have this repetition uh, of all the other parts, right? So we have the carpe diem passages. We have the um, garden passage. We have the um, everything is appropriate in its time. So we have these overlapping elements already. And then we add this, add the word hevel onto that. And it's typically translated vanity or meaningless or nothing. Um, there are, I mean, people like pretty much if, you know, every, every person, every, every scholar has another way to translate this word hevel. It's the exact same word as um, Abel. It's spelled the exact same way in Hebrew. Abel, like the word, like uh, the name Abel in the Cain and Abel narrative. 
Um, it's the very same word. Now, as an example, and uh, I need you guys to help me out here. So if we think about the word, and this is going to get us to kind of the meaning of Hevel in a roundabout way, but we'll get there. The word bread. What are some different types of bread that you can think of? Brit. Bagel. Bagel. Okay. A bagel is bread. Sourdough? Does somebody say sourdough? Yeah, the best kind of bread. Sourdough. What? Rye? What? Wheat bread? Holland? Hala? Oh, hala. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. All right. Pita? Pumpernickel? Non? It's good. Really good type of bread. Okay, uh... Tortillas, pretty much every single culture in the whole world has some sort of bread, right? We love making bread at our house. And I'm always amazed every single time. You basically put in like flour, water, sugar, and yeast. And depending on how you kind of like do that, the amounts that you use, you have all these different sorts of breads, right? Like all the things that you mentioned, rye and pumpernickel and wheat bread and Hala, naan, and pita bread, and tortillas, and donuts, and donuts are a really big, do y'all have donut shops here? Okay, it's like a really big thing in, in Louisiana. There's like a million donut shops. Okay, so donuts, bagels, tons and tons and tons of different sorts of bread. And you could say something like a flatbread. Pita, naan, tortillas are types of flatbread. But... A bagel is not a donut, right? A donuts and bagels are different. They are both round with a hole in the middle, but they're different from each other. The cooking process is different. One is really sweet. One is typically not sweet, right? The same way a tortilla is not the same thing as rye bread, okay? But they're both considered types of bread. Now, bread is this kind of big umbrella term, right? Um, it's a big umbrella term to refer to all sorts of different things. So if you say the word bread, you could mean any of the things that we listed. You can mean any of those things. Any of those things can be called bread. Cornbread, fried. Do y'all have fried cornbread or cowboy cornbread here? Oh, it's so good. Anyway, it's like cornmeal and water fried. If you go to the south, get some. Um, all these sorts of breads. But, so if I say bread... You could fill in, the, fill in the blank with any understanding of the word bread that you wanted to, essentially. But if I said um, tortilla, then you cannot fill in the blank with any other thing. A tortilla is a very specific thing, right? It's a round, flat piece of bread that is cooked in a skillet or, uh, or whatever. Same thing if I said rye bread, and then I was like, hey, can you give me a slice of rye bread? And he brought me a tortilla, I would think... Like, okay, we've miscommunicated some way here. There's not, like, there's not, and then you could say, well, it's bread. I'm like, well, sure, it's bread. They're both bread, but they're different things. Okay, so we can have an umbrella term, and then we can have smaller terms under that, like flatbread would be like a tortilla, naan, or um, uh, pita bread. And we could also say uh, bread loaves, and you can have pumpernickel and rye and wheat bread and white bread and all sorts of things like that, right? You can have different sorts of 
bred in those certain categories. So you have a broad term, then you can have narrower terms, you know, with, that have fewer options, or you can have a very narrow term like tortilla that pretty much means only one thing. Like, of course, it could mean you could be talking about like wheat tortillas or white tortillas or um, I don't know, spinach tortillas or whatever, but you get my, you get the drift. In the, so, <clears throat> this helps us understand the word hevel in Ecclesiastes, okay? Because hevel is a very broad, very, very broad term, okay? And throughout its history of interpretation or the way that it's been translated throughout, you know, translations, it gets kind of muddled up. In Hebrew, this term has a really broad, broad, broad range of meaning. It can, it can mean, it can mean vanity in some cases. Um, it can also mean incomprehensible. It can mean, you know, ephemeral. It can mean fleeting. Its literal meaning is breath. Uh, that's what, it's a, a onomatopoeia, you know, so it sounds like what it means, just breath. It can mean vapor. It can mean smoke. Um, it's a very, very broad range of meaning. So it's a big umbrella term, okay? So and within that umbrella, you can have the, the, the dictionary definition of breath or vapor. You can also have these metaphorical meanings of um, ephemeral or not lasting, fleeting, brief, okay? Those are more um, metaphorical meanings built off of this literal meaning of breath, Okay. In Greek, it's pretty much the same way. So we have the Hebrew Bible, and then um, the Bible that Jesus and, and his disciples used was most likely the Greek translation. It's called the Septuagint. And it uses similarly a term with a really broad range of meaning. It has two different words for that are translated that translate hevel, but they both have this pretty broad range of meaning, okay? Breath, vapor, mist, ephemerality. Um, it has, there, there's a lot of uh, leeway, a lot of room to kind of understand what the author, try to understand what the author is saying. You know, it's not, you're not locked in like you would be with the word tortilla. Now, um, in Latin, so kind of the way the translations go is you have Hebrew and then you have Greek, and then you have Latin. Jerome translates this Latin Vulgate. You remember, he gets in trouble with for doing the Vulgate uh, because he says, like, people should be able to read the Bible, right? And so he creates a, the Latin Vulgate. And then later on, centuries later, um, other people will come along and say, well, people need the Bible in German and they need it in English too, right? And so um, Jerome does this for Latin. And he uses a word called vanitas. And vanitas has a very, very narrow range of meaning. It means vanity, like something like it's something that is vain or um, like basically ineffectual, okay? So we have the Hebrew word hevel has a really broad, broad range of meaning like the word brit, okay? Big, huge category with a lot of room for movement, okay? It's very um, broad, Okay. When we get to the Latin translation, Jerome's translation, we get a word like tortilla, a very specific word with a narrow range of meaning. And then when we get the, the, English, the English Bible translators, almost 100% follow Jerome in this word vanity. 
And now our modern translations typically use a word like meaningless or vanity or incomprehensible, something like that. Some sort of word that's inherently negative, right? But the problem with that is when a breath, Hevel, a breath is fleeting for sure, but it is not meaningless, okay? I can guarantee you. So I, uh, I cut my hand really bad uh, about a year and a half ago and went to the hospital. My wife rushed me to the hospital, you know. Uh, we get there, like they had to do this complex surgery. Um, and after, they, then they discharged me after the surgery. And I got, I had contracted pneumonia while I was in the hospital. And like pneumonia is, I don't know if you guys ever had pneumonia, if anyone's ever had pneumonia, but you do not want it. It is very bad. And so I come home, I can't breathe, my lips are purple, like, I'm just like, you know, laying out, Britt's like, man, why is he being so lazy, you know, like, his hand is fine, what's the problem? Anyway, she takes me back to the hospital, eventually, or to urgent care, um, and I started, I had to get on antibiotics and all of this stuff, and I ended up staying in the hospital for several days, recovering from pneumonia, which I had contracted to get, while I was in surgery, getting my hand fixed. So, all that to say, Breathing is very important. Breathing, and so breathing with pneumonia is very difficult, and it gave me just a newfound appreciation for breath. It is not meaningless. So when we read something in Ecclesiastes that says everything is vanity or everything is meaningless, that's just not what the author is saying. It is not at all what he's getting at. And so we've fallen into this trap of taking a word with a really broad range of meaning and given it a very narrow range of meaning. And that makes us really miss out on what the author is saying. And it makes us, it gives us a view of the book as negative. Do you have a question? Oh, that hey, bait, lament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, thank you, yeah. So hey, bait, lament. So we end up missing what this book is about because we come to it with this preconceived idea that it's a depressing, um, meaningless book. We think that the author is saying everything is meaningless, but that is not at all what he's saying. So what does this word mean? I think the way we understand this word is going to shape the way we understand the whole rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. And because of what we talked about last session, all of these references to Genesis in, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, every single chapter has an allusion to the book of Genesis. And so when you're reading this book, if we're reading this book in ancient Israel and we're no Hebrew and like our culture, like we don't have, like the ancient Israelites didn't have like television and Netflix and social media and all of those things. So their culture was somewhat more limited in the sense that like they didn't have as many forms of entertainment. So like they had a lot more time to study scripture, you know. They would have understood Hebrew. They would have understood the book of Genesis. And as they're reading this book, their minds would be like clicking, boom, 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 over and over on the book of Genesis as the author is talking about it. And so when they hear the word hevel, they're thinking in light of all of these other allusions to Genesis, they're not thinking meaningless or vain. They're thinking, oh, wait, I know that guy. 
That's, that's all Abel, you know, Abel from the Cain and Abel narrative, chapter four in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think that, gen- that Ecclesiastes is using this word hevel or able to discuss the, the difficult realities of life. And I'm going to talk about why uh, because of this word, because um, the Cain and Abel story, okay? So we're going to talk first about retribution theology. Um, so I have a son, we have a son named Abel. I'm going to skip through this real fast first. Um, I don't know if you guys grew up with video games, but like when I saw this, I nearly died, you know, because I grew up with video games. And so Super Smash Brothers is like a, is a video game. And so anyway, this is the biblical version. So um, we named our son Abel, our second son Abel, because of our, my work in Ecclesiastes and because we, you read about the story of this guy who loved the Lord, he was faithful to God, and yet his life was cut short. You know, the New Testament calls him a martyr. Um, and it says that his blood cries out from the ground. And he is this, this first example of like someone really walking with the Lord um, and, and suffering because of it. Now, my, I looked outside one time. We have these, um, like our kitchen has like windows to the outside. And like right outside, one of the windows is, so our house had been, was previously owned by a florist, which sounds wonderful, Unless you're like me, and like you're not good at forest, florist, florist, you're not good at flowers or anything like that. Like the other yesterday, we saw a bunch of we we're like walking in somewhere and saw a bunch of plants, and my oldest son's like, "Those are so pretty." He's like, "You know, we have plants at our home, but they're not pretty because we don't know how to take care of them." So it's true. But so anyway, our house was owned by a florist, and so we have like all of this what would be beautiful landscaping if we could like do it. But she was like really skilled, and, I, and my wife and I are not, mainly me. So anyway, in front of the house, there's like a flower bed with these huge rocks. And like one day I look outside, and Abel, not Abel, but Peyton, has holding one of these big rocks over his head, just like in that picture, and like walking toward Abel, you know? And I'm like, no, no, this is like not what you want to see when your kid is named Abel. The other, you don't want to see your other son walking with a rock toward him. All right, but he was, it was okay. I made it out in time. He put the rock down, and it was fine. <clears throat> so, but before we get into the Cain and Abel story, I want to talk about something called retribution theology because retribution theology, like all of this stuff, I hope it like makes sense. There's like a lot of moving parts, but I think it'll come together. Retribution theology is like this basic idea that if you do good things, you'll get good things will happen to you, and if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you, right? It's pretty much, um, it's like cause and effect. Um, it's our broader culture would talk about karma or what goes around comes around, right? And so this idea that if we are good people, follow the Lord, do what is right, then good things will happen to us. And if we don't, if we're bad people, if we disobey the Lord, then bad things will happen to us, okay? That is pretty much the way that we read in what we see in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? So when we read the book of Deuteronomy, I'll just read a few passages here. Deuteronomy 7, 11 through 15. God makes a big deal about this, by the way. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. This is Moses talking. 
If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and olive oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor will any of your livestock be without young. Then the Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. And it goes on some more. Now, those are the, called the covenant blessings. We see these in other places, but they pretty much include land, so promised land, the land of Israel, uh, children, like lots and lots of children. You have to have people to work that land. So land, children, uh, material wealth in terms of flocks and herds, and you heard like right here, like uh, bumper crops and stuff like that, like basically a very rich and robust agricultural life. A lot of your, your flocks are going to do really well. Your herds are going to grow. Your plants are going to produce. Things are going to go well for you. You're going to have a lot of children, and you're going to live a long life, okay? So that is, those are what's called like the Deuteronomic blessings, blessings from the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Now, the curses in Genesis, sorry, Deuteronomy 28... I'm not going to read all those because it's a really long list of bad things that will happen. It's basically the opposite. 28, 15 through 68. So I'll just start. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all of these curses will come on you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your lands, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you're destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you've done in forsaking him. And he goes on that way for the next, what, 40, 50 verses, okay? saying all the bad things are going to happen. And it's very graphic, but it's essentially the reversal. So if you obey the Lord, you will have children, land, fruitful crops and herds, and you'll live a long time. If you disobey the Lord, you will have the you will have none of that. You will not have land. You will not have fruitful crops. You will not have children, um, and you will not have um, the fourth thing. What was it? Long life, right? You'll die young, essentially. Now, all of this, one thing to keep in mind is this is based on this covenant relationship that God established with Israel, okay? So I don't have time to go into this, but it's really fascinating and really interesting and really helpful for understanding what's going on here. But basically, when God brought the people of Israel up out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. You guys know this, the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant, and that's based off of a covenant called a suzerain vassal treaty or suzerain vassal covenant where a suzerain or an overlord, a more powerful person makes a covenant with a less powerful person, okay? So it'd be like, um, you know, like a really powerful nation making co covenant with a weaker nation. And in this arrangement, the overlord, the suzerain has responsibilities 
to take care of the vassal, like to give them land. And that, like this is all in like ancient, it's called ancient Hittite. It's like an ancient culture thousands of years ago. And the, it lists all these sorts of, um, sorts of arrangements between people. You give them land, take care of them, make sure no one invades them, that sort of thing. And the vassal or the lesser party is supposed to give loyalty. This is the word hesed. Um, covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness, covenant love to the overlord. And that means they are supposed to keep the commandments, okay? Keep the commandments or the stipulations. And if they don't, there's blessings and curses, okay? So this is what we're reading in the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's working out of this covenant relationship. So the Lord brought his people out of Israel. He said, you're my people now. I rescued you from slavery. Because I rescued you from slavery, you are mine, and here are the, the covenant obligations, you know, like don't murder, don't have other gods before me, don't um, worship anyone else, don't make, don't make images, like those things. And then he says, those are, those are the covenant's commandments, the stipulations, and if you break those covenants, here's what you can expect, and if you keep those covenants, here's what you can expect, okay? So that's what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. That's basically what retribution theology is. If you're faithful to the covenant, you can expect long life, blessing, descendants, um, abundant crops, abundant herds. If you're unfaithful, you can expect to have none of that, okay? We see a similar uh, setup in Proverbs, right? There's like, if you read the book of Proverbs, it's very much based on kind of like cause and effect. In a rightly ordered world, this is how things should happen. In a world where everything happens as it should, if you are wise, you should succeed, and if you are foolish, you should not succeed. You should not succeed. But all of us know, right, from reading the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes, that that's not really always how things happen, right? We know, we can look around us, we know people in our lives who are foolish or who are ungodly, and yet it looks like they succeed. If you'll remember Psalm 73 or 72, I think it's 73, where the writer says, like, Lord, my foot had almost slipped because I looked at the prosperity of the wickedness, right? I mean, I can relate to that. I can identify with this feeling of frustration because we see the prosperity of people that don't follow the Lord. And, and we, read, we can read the book of Deuteronomy and say, like, okay, Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, and yet, like, we have, we see in our lives around us, like, you don't have to uh, go far um, until you see someone that this doesn't work out, you know? You, you, we know people who have been good and godly and kind who have died a young death. We know people who have been wicked and evil who have lived a really long time, Right? And I think this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is struggling with. And the reason I think that is because of this key word, hevel. Abel is this first example of the breakdown of retribution theology, right? It's the first example of when things don't go the way they're supposed to go because we live in a Genesis 3 world, a sin-ridden, dark world. World. Now, if we'll read Genesis 4, 1 through 18, we'll see the breakdown of things. 
kind of a while long, but I'm just going to read the story. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. So like, don't ever go out to the field with your siblings. It's kind of the key takeaway here. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's the real takeaway. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methuselah, or sorry, Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. And it goes on from there. Now, it's a tragic story, right? Cain and Abel. Cain, Abel brings an offering that's appropriate to the Lord, and Cain brings an offering that's not appropriate to the Lord. Um, and Cain is angry because of this. The Lord gives him a chance to say, look, look, just do the right thing. You know, like he, God isn't provoking Cain into sin here. He's saying, do what's right and you'll be accepted. Cain obviously doesn't accept this. He murders Abel. Abel then becomes this, you know, he says, my blood cries out from the ground. In the New Testament, he's called this first martyr. Cain, though, notice, goes on to live this long life, right? It talks about the children that he has, so descendants. It talks about the founding of this city, right? He creates a city, and now if we keep reading there, we find out all these things that Cain's descendants do. Um, presumably, he had wealth if he's founding a city, um, and he has a lot of descendants, a lot of, so he has material wealth, he has a descendants, he lives a long life, right? He goes on, and he, gets, he even gets a mark of protection from the Lord, Obviously, Cain is still punished for his sin, but God mitigates that punishment, and Cain goes on to essentially receive these blessings that we talked about that we find in Deuteronomy, right? Long life, descendants, material wealth, prosperity, abundant crops and herds, all of these things. And yet Abel, who was righteous, who was godly, who did what was right, he dies young, without any children, like his line is canceled out, you know, 
There no more, there's like no descendants of Abel. He doesn't have kids. He doesn't get to get married. He doesn't have this long, fruitful, productive life with the mark with blessings from the Lord. So right here in the book of Genesis, we have this first example of how the world is flipped upside down, where we have Cain, who, who was ungodly and unrighteous. He receives the fruits of righteousness. And on the other hand, we have Abel, who was godly in righteousness, and he gets all of the curses come down on him, right? He dies young. He doesn't have children. And so we look at that, and we would say, man, what, what is going on here? Because it looks like Cain is blessed, and it looks like Abel is cursed because Abel's dead, and he doesn't get any of the things that we know are part of this blessing that comes with being obedient to the Lord. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes picks up on this idea. 38 times throughout the book, he says, this is Hevel, this is Hevel, this is Hevel, this is Hevel, this is Hevel. He's saying 38 times over and over again, this is like Abel, this is like Abel, this is like Abel, this is like Abel. This is one of those situations where things should happen this way, but they happen this other way. And in the next session, we're going to talk about what to do in light of that. But in this session, I think we just need to look at and say, okay, Ecclesiastes is wrestling with this idea that just like the Cain and Abel narrative, we experience life upside down quite frequently. And it's even worse in the New Testament, right? Where Jesus says, oh, by the way, you can expect persecution, right? You can expect to be murdered for your faith. He says, you can expect things to go badly for you, right? So even more so as New Testament believers, we experience this upside down nature uh, of the world. And that's what Ecclesiastes is getting at. It's not saying everything is meaningless. It's not saying everything is vain. It's saying everything is like Abel, upside down. And so let's chart a course through this world. How do we navigate that? Now I wanna just run through we don't have much time left, but I want to run through several places where um, Ecclesiastes, several things that it says are upside down. So first, death overtakes everyone. Read Ecclesiastes 2, 15 through 17. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is able, like able, Hevel. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when they have both been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So in a rightly ordered world, in a world where everything happens as it's supposed to happen, you would expect a wise person and a foolish person to be marked by different things, Right? But Ecclesiastes is saying, look, here's an example of something that's like Abel. All of us are going to kick the bucket. We're all headed to the grave. And it doesn't matter if we're wise or foolish because death is going to take, overtake all of us. It's this great equalizer. If we keep reading here, we'll find out that another thing that isn't the way it should be is that we'll work hard and leave everything to a fool, right? Hopefully not, but you might. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. 
This too is like Abel. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is like Abel and a great misfortune. What do people all get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is like Abel. So if we go back to the Garden of Eden, work was supposed to be a positive thing, right? God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and they said, look, work this, take care of it, keep it. And yet, in Ecclesiastes is saying, by the way, in life post-fall, in this sin-ridden life, we work really hard, uh, and it's frustrating, and it's tiresome, and when we die, our kids might be foolish and waste it all. Hopefully not, but they might. And if they do, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Life is turned upside down. The wicked and righteous are inverted. Let's look at 3, 16 through 18, and then 8, 14. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, both will bring, God will bring both, will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity and a time to judge every deed. I said to myself, as for humans, God tests them to see that they're like animals. And he goes on to talk about how animals and humans are the same because they both die. So wise and foolish both die, humans and animals both die. And he has this incredible line in verse 21 that we're going to talk a little bit about later. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Usually this word, who knows, when we see that in the Old Testament, it's this, the imply, the implication when you say, who knows? Remember the book of Esther? Who knows whether you or God put you here or whether you were here for such a time as this? Who knows? Well, God knows, all right? And that's what he's, you know, he's gonna, we're gonna find out later. He's gonna answer this question. Who knows if the spirit goes up and the body goes down? Well, God knows. Um, 8.14. There is something else like Abel that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is like Abel, right? The exact opposite. The wicked get what the righteous deserve and the righteous get what the wicked deserve. This doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough to be frustrating. Loneliness accompanies wealth, Ecclesiastes 5, 13 through 17. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its own owner or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. So on the one hand, you might leave your fortune, your, all of your work might be for someone who's foolish, and that's not the way it should be. And on the other hand, you might not even have anything to leave anyone, and that also is, the way, is not the way it should be, he's saying. There's this, this retribution principle is wonky. Things aren't working out the way they're supposed to. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil and they, that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. And everyone comes, so they depart. As everyone comes, so they depart. 
And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. So, we're not going to do these last two because we're running out of time here. So, you know, we talked about how there are all these themes in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, hope and joy and frustration and anger and death and fearing God and loving God. In the next session, we're going to talk about Kohelet's or Ecclesiastes' solution to this problem. We're going to talk about how he says to enjoy God's gifts and to fear God. So that'll be tonight. So please come back and listen to that because I don't want to leave you on this like dark, depressed note. But the book of Ecclesiastes is not about everything being meaningless. And this is what, why it ripped at my heart and like helped me know who God is because I finally found in this book, like that scholar said, a back, a back door into the Christian faith because I read this book and I said, yes, like I, that is how I feel. That is the life I've experienced is upside down, things not working out the way they should. I mentioned to you guys about my, my grandmother dying when I was really young. She, I was, um, came in one day from vacation Bible school, and I was like, I, I can't remember if I was 11 or 12. It was kind, it's kind of hazy. It's that fourth, fifth, sixth grade area. I came home from vacation Bible school, and my grandmother had a, um, uh, a little cotton ball, you know, with a piece of tape on it right here. And like it was blood on it. And she, we come from home from vacation Bible school with my, um, I was with my aunt and we walk in the house and my grandmother just starts crying, just like weeping. And I look at her arm and I think like, as only you can think when you're a kid, I think, oh man, that must've like, she must've really hurt her arm, you know? And like kind of nothing could go on about it. And I heard her say, uh, my lymphoma is back. And, like, I had no idea what that meant, you know. But it wasn't long, just a few months. Um, she, this was the second time she had cancer. And she only lived for a few more months after that, you know. And so this, this woman who had spent hours and hours and hours and hours with me, the person I would ate breakfast in the house, I went to her house after school, I spent the weekends there, she died, you know, and... I can, you know, just the anger and the frustration. And she was so godly, you guys. She loved the Lord. I have this vivid memory of her being in a car with her. Her hair was all gone. And she's singing Amazing Grace. And I was so mad. I didn't understand that song, you know. Uh, but I was so mad because I, I thought, you know, how, how absurd. I, obviously, I did not know the word absurd when I was 12. I'm sure I thought something else when I was 11, whatever. How stupid, I probably thought, that she would sing this. She's about to die, you know. Her hair is gone, and this God has done this to her, you know. And she ends up dying, you know, not long after, and that memory stayed with me. Uh, and that, I thought about that years later. That's what ended up, ended up leading me to Christ was hearing my grandmother sing the song Amazing Grace and things just kind of clicked when I was older of like, oh, okay, like I get it now. Like it really is like God's grace that was sustaining her and it really was this incredible faith she had in the Lord. Um, and I've looked back on her faith so much and I just get, I still just, I still struggle some with thinking here's a woman who loved the Lord 
was faithful and served him and died when she was like 60 years old. Very young. And on the other hand, I know people who have lived a very long time, you know, who are not like that. And so that experience is, is kind of like the, the key, like monumental experience of my life that I think, man, why do things work out this way? Why is life upside down? Why does this godly, faithful woman die at 60? Um, I don't know. I don't know. And the book of Ecclesiastes, though, it at least addresses the same question and it struggles with those questions of what do we do when life is upside down? What do we do when life is like Abel? And what I want to talk about in the next session is, like I said, Ecclesiastes tells us to fear God and to enjoy his gifts. And that's kind of the way that we're able to navigate these situations that just don't make any sense. So please come back tonight, and we'll turn things over to Pastor Jeremy here. All right, well, let's, let's pray. Let's bless the Lord together. Father, we bless you. We thank you for today uh, in the midst of a world that seems upside down, topsy-turvy, they might say. Um, God, we, we trust you. Um, you're the creator of every good and perfect thing. You give us what we need today. And God, you call us into a life as, as Jesus teaches in in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those uh, who persecute you. Um, but, but blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, all, say all these false and such things about you. Great is your reward in heaven. Blessed, blessed are those who, who, who experience all of these things that can seem meaningless on this earth. And yet, God, you delight in us and you walk with us in the middle of the deep and the dark, as well as the happy and the joyful. Um, God, you walk with us, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you meet us here, that you give us wisdom, guidance, and direction for life. Uh, as, we, as we go about our day today and we return tonight, Lord, um, give us great discernment to know what would be honoring and pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. If you have any other questions, feel free to come on up and ask them. You all are dismissed.